the teenage years, 16 candles, fervent passions, aimless joy rides in the forbidden taste of beer, a time the world allows for sowing one's wild oats. But for some individuals I came to know in the summer of their discontent, it had been a time when they had sown the seeds of their own destruction. Chicago's outskirts April 5th, the Cook County Warehouse and Impound Yard. It had been the center of considerable controversy. One of Chicago's largest cemeteries, the Hills of Lethe, had been sold to a real estate developer who was going to erect condominiums. The former occupants of Hills of Lethe had to be moved. In spite of the care that was taken, there were some mistakes and oversights. In one case, the oversight was very small, but it blossomed into a flower of evil. That was the voice of reporter Carl Kolchak in the episode that we are calling Chopper. It was directed by Bruce Kessler, teleplay by Steve Fisher and David Chase, and it aired January 31st, 1975. I'm your host, Mike White, and joining me, as always, is Mr. Chris Sashew. Yes, and I'm here with my head perfectly on my shoulders, unlike most of the people in the episode Chopper. However, I'm a little surprised, Mike, you're not giving any credit to Zemeckis and Bob Gale. I was going to get there. Okay, because they probably don't deserve any credit. A story by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, one of their first credits, I believe. A story by them that is essentially the tale of Sleepy Hollow. Just kind of transported to motorcycle gangs. Right. I mean, essentially, you know, a headless motorcycle rider murders those who wronged him. And it reminds me a little bit of Psychomania, I guess, because of the motorcycle gang and the whole idea of the undead, that kind of thing. I was really surprised. Steve Fisher, and I I had to double check this. This is the same Steve Fisher. And I'm going to say this and you're going to be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. He's the same guy that wrote I Wake Up Screaming way back in 1941. That was turned into a movie, I think, with Betty Grable. And his, his screen credits go back for years, and I actually own a lot of movies and TV shows that he did, including The Clones from 1973, and then he also did uh, I Wouldn't Be in Your Shoes, which is another kind of old pulpy film noir. So this guy's got real legit credits, and I'm not sure exactly how he ended up here, but he was doing like a lot of Fantasy Island and Starsky and Hutch towards the end of his days. Yeah, I don't know how he ended up here either, because... This episode is a uh, – it's an interesting episode. My goodness, is this episode just rife with character actors. There are so many familiar faces, even to the guy who is the night watchman at this warehouse that we kind of start off when, though we don't see him at this point, and we see him later on. Was he the the the, the – Maytag repairman or something. I mean, this guy is super familiar. I like the amount of character actors in in this episode, but I also kind of found it a little distracting. Well, yeah, I can see that insofar as you see a Jim Backus and you think for sure this guy's got to come back, and then he doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Jim Backus of Backus Wineries, right? Yeah, who was stranded on an island for a lot of years. It was kind of weird. It was kind of like uh, another... Robert Zemeckis film, which was called Castaway. Exactly. Oh, boy. <laughs> the bottom of the barrel is calling. We're there. <laughs> Before we kind of get too, too far into this, I think it is important that we talk about the fact that Zemeckis and Gale have not aged well in their works. And 
the longer they've gone on, the worse the stuff they've worked on has gotten. Do you mean their stuff or Zemeckis' stuff? A little bit of both. I mean, most I mean, most of it's put on Zemeckis, right? Zemeckis hasn't done shit in the last decade that's mattered to anyone. Gail, he's been writing uh, mostly books, from what I understand, for the last however many years. But really, like, the last big thing, and I put big in quotation marks, that I remember is Bordello of Blood. I mean, but before that, he was kind of knocking him out of the park, with the exception of 1941. I mean, I want to hold your hand, use cars, Back to the Future, Trespass. I love Trespass. So, and then he ended up doing a lot of stuff with Tales from of the Crypt, Tales from the Crypt, if memory serves. Well, I mean, he did Bordello of Blood. Bordello of Blood is Bordello of Blood is one of those things where I don't understand why anyone thought it was a good idea. And it shows on screen because Bordello of Blood is the inferior Tales from the Crypt film. Uh, I will agree with you that Bob Gale seemingly has kind of removed himself from what I would say to be like the problematic thing that Zemeckis has done, where he's essentially overstayed his welcome by a decade. Um, And Zemeckis, I mean, Zemeckis hasn't made anything of value in the longest time. And you have stuff like this, which is like we've been talking about. This is their first story credit. And it it's not it's not anything to write home about, but it's at least better than Flight or Beowulf or The Polar Express or Castaway or The Walk. And to me it's it's like it's indicative of Zemeckis at least a little bit. Uh, that, you know, I'm, we're watching this episode of the show and it's like this, when they're, when like Bob Gale and Zemeckis really had a great idea, it really fired on all cylinders. But if we're talking about this show and this episode, it's not anything special or exciting. It's just kind of generic. Other than their names being in the credits, it's like, okay, this is what I would say is kind of a typical episode of Kolchak. And by the way, that's not a very good thing. No, I mean, we've gone from high to low, and so being in the middle, it's not a, a, a huge bar to jump. There are episodes like Primal Scream, which are dorky, and then there's episodes like this that are just forgettable. And the thing that's crazy about this episode is, you and I both know this, there's a huge amount of people that are very into this episode. They really like this episode. I know it's hard to get past, especially for me, the initial shot of the guy riding the motorcycle. It's it's clearly a guy with <laughs> like a prosthetic thing on his shoulders that makes his, him look taller. Oh my god! It's yeah, so it is so bad. <laughs> so bad. It, it, like it, in my mind, when I say like these things haven't aged well. That's the thing I think of when we're talking like this hasn't aged well. It really hasn't aged well. Those effects have not aged well at all. Not even remotely close. So I was ripping on Zemeckis recently because of the uh, really poor showing of Welcome to Marwin. And apparently I, I was really schooled by a lot of people who kept telling me how great Allied is and that the walk is really something but I, I just have no desire to see those. I mean, especially The Walk. I mean, I saw the documentary that The Walk was based on. 
I saw the documentary that Welcome to Marwin was based on. I mean, is that going to be his new thing is to just take documentaries and then make fictionalized versions of those? Well, that's what I was going to ask is he he's essentially hasn't even worked on anything original. Allied is a is based off of history. Welcome to Marwin is based off of a documentary. The Walk is based off of a documentary. Flight is, I guess, original. And then his next announced project is redoing The Witches, the Roald Dahl story that was uh, filmed by Nick Rogue a few, you know, 20-some years ago, or probably more like 30. Well, and what about Christmas Carol, Beowulf, Polar Express? Are, are oh, What are those? In my mind, what are those? Those are fucking movies that are based off of something else. <laughs> like, it's – originality seems to have gone out the window, and I think that that, in my mind, extends to this. And I'm not trying to be, like – overly crass about it but like this episode in my mind it, it's not creative it's it's very bland and boring and very rote it is a very rote episode what happens in this episode is not surprising or original it's very much just a, an episode that mm, i understand why people are like scared by it but it hadn't aged well it's more laughable than anything else towards the end if it wasn't for the preponderance of character actors in here, it would have been a lot more boring. I mean, I really like that Larry Linville, Larry Linville returning from his triumphant appearance in the original Night Stalker movie, in that he was a medical examiner and now he's a police captain. And this is one of the, now we've always had an antagonistic relationship between the police and Kolchak, and it doesn't end here, but the way that Kolchak plays Linville by coming in with this story about how the guy who is murdered at the beginning of the show, that he's an heir to this fortune, and then Linville has to correct him and just go beyond the pale as far as giving him all this exposition. Well, I got an inside tip, and then I had our financial editor to check it out, and it's true. Joseph Morton was in line to inherit the whole entire Morton's holding company by 10 12 corporations on Canab, Utah. That loser wasn't about to inherit anything, but a cab driver's fat behind. He was a young punk from Cicero, had a yellow sheet as long as your arm. A nobody. He was worth eight million bucks, that's somebody. Morton ran away from home when he was about 14 years old, lived with a couple in Cicero. But the Morton family knew where he was all the time. And they let him join the Jokers, a punk bike gang, boozing, girls, breaking store windows, huh? In 1956 alone, Morton was busted nine times. Drunk and disorderly, aggravated assault, grand theft auto. Copper air, my Yankee. Okay, all right. Captain Jonas, you just better check it out for yourself. I mean, it's your neck. There, old money there, society people involved. Sit down. Now, Henry Spake, a.k.a. Studs, head of the Jokers, stabbed a gym teacher at 16. That was Morton's best friend. Spake is still a biker. Even worse now, he runs the Devil's Advocates, loves to run tour buses off the road. Now, is that the kind of society chum the Morton family picked for their son, huh? You're pathetic. Well, who knows about families these days? I don't know anything about it. it was Joe and, and his father, old and the old man Morton, J.J., uh, had irreconcilable differences. But uh, Mrs. Morton, uh, Joe's mother, Glenda, loved the boy and kept sending him money surreptitiously year after year after year until last, uh, until she died. It was about, uh, uh -huh. yeah, late last year. And Mom let him marry Lila Polito, huh? High school dropout. Lila and her sister Carl used to ride with the Jokers. Real debutantes, those two. Well, Lila I knew about, but not Debbie. Coral. Oh, Coral. 
You know, you really got a lot of information there, Captain. You've really done your homework. Well, I don't miss much. No, you don't. You know, we're a lot alike, Captain. We really ought to work together. This, uh, this Morton mining thing is really going to put me into the A number one position in the paper. It's going to just do terrific things for my career. And as for you and the department here, you're just going to be sensational for you. I hope you realize that. Well, you realize this. I never work with the press. And the question of Joe Morton is not open to outside investigation. You get no help from this office. Well, I'm just trying to benefit us both. Out! And take your riches to rags nonsense with you. Oh, that's the thanks I get for trying to help. Out, out, huh? Yeah, out. I genuinely enjoy that scene. I don't think that that has anything to do with the story by Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis credit. It might, but I really don't think so. I think that was more Fisher and Chase when it came to this. So there are moments where I'm like, okay, yeah, this is good. But the overall story of this headless biker who will not stop murdering members of his old bike gang until he's reunited with his head. Yeah, that's very, very rote story. Well, and the other thing that, you know, we, we kind of haven't mentioned is, and the thing that really bugged me about this episode, honestly, more than anything else, even outside of like the very just kind of rote nature of the episode, the end of the episode is so quick and out of nowhere. And I was just like, wait, what? It, it's over. It's over. Yeah. He just throws the head back at the motorcyclist who, falls off the motorcycle, and then all of a sudden he's a fully, complete, put-together skeleton that looks like he escaped Jamie Farr's classroom. The idea here is that you threw it at him, and he's gone now, and then Kolchak's like, and then, oh yeah, by the way, the the police chief who was, or the captain who was messing with me the entire episode, uh, he's now a meter maid. The end. Wait, like, wait, what? Like, it's it's so, it's so drastic and quick. And and I, I just I don't appreciate when a show is giving me kind of a an not interesting because, again, this episode really is a little a little rote, but it's like it's trying to do something. And then all of a sudden it's like, but it doesn't matter what I would have liked. And I know that I'm constantly trying to rewrite Kolchak, you know, all these years later is we've got that B story going on with Tony and him having to drink the milk of magnesia and he. The last time we see Tony, he is getting that carryout order after he sees everybody in the office enjoying this greasy, heavy food. Show me him with a tummy ache at the end of the episode, and Carl has to check in with him before he goes back to his desk and writes up the rest of his story. Or Ron or Miss Emily say, oh, yeah, Tony's back in the hospital again with his ulcers. Give me a little something there to just wrap it up. Well, that's my point. Like it, it, the the episode closes out out of nowhere, and you don't you don't get to see that. You don't get to see anything. You don't get to see the episode tie up in a way that feels organic and natural. All you get to see is a very rushed ending. We've had this conversation already about David Chase writing for the show. He wrote the episode the the werewolf. Oh dear God in heaven! And then um, he also worked on the vampire. And that vampire episode is actually, you know, pretty good. It's a pretty good follow-up to that other, you know, original Kolchak episode of the vampire, the movie. It's a pretty good follow-up. But the werewolf is, I mean, in my mind, this episode and the werewolf are kind of, you look at him and you're like, well, you know, David Chase has come a long way. Well, from what I understand, David Chase was the story editor, so he was involved with every single episode. It was just which ones ended up getting his 
story credit. Sure. It's kind of like when we talk to Frank Spotnitz about credits when it comes to TV series. So you might work on an episode, not get your name on it, or you might get your name on something that you didn't work that much on. So it's always kind of a crapshoot when it comes to some of these credits. I think with something like this, it was probably the Steve Fisher credit was probably the majority of the writing. And then David Chase got the kind of the second credit to it. But, you know, we're going to see his name even on the episodes that aren't credited to him. I see his name on the scripts when I'm looking at these screenplays. In my mind, this is a direct aping of Sleepy Hollow. But in your I mean, am I out of base in that regard? Do you kind of feel the same way? No, it it really plays a lot with the Washington Irving thing. And there's not necessarily an Ichabod Crane character to this. I mean, I guess it's Stud Spake because he gets attacked a few times. But he's around, but we don't really ever get to know this guy that much, um, which is kind of a, strain, uh, a shame because Art Matrano is fantastic. And, I mean, he's always good in whatever he does. Most people my age are going to know him as uh, Lieutenant Hauser from the Police Academy movies. I don't want anyone listening to feel like I'm piling on this episode because this episode's not good by by any means in my mind, but it's not as bad as it could have been. I think the problem in my mind with the episode is just the the effects are so distracting. It's kind of like the werewolf in that respect. Like the werewolf's effects were very distracting. Almost, at least in the, I mean, I was going to say at least the werewolf, they're not laughably bad, but in this episode, they're laughably bad. Yes, the effects are bad, but I was really okay looking past those and just enjoying this as more of a detective story because that, at the end of the day, is what it ends up being with Kolchak doing proper investigative reporting. I mean, I love the scene when he goes to Jim Backus and this whole thing of these tires and what models were these tires on. And Backus has that kind of weird backstory of him being shot down in World War II and talking about you know, the Japanese and how they make good bikes, even though it sounds like maybe he was like a POW or something. It's a really kind of a strange turn for this episode, but it, to me, it was kind of fascinating. Matsuda made planes during the war, made good ones. I was a Navy flyer. It just so happens that I was shot down in flames over Tarawa by a Matsuda 140 Tiger Shock. I was in the VA for a year. I I couldn't walk. But they make darn good bikes. Forgive them. Forget them. <laughs> yes, of course. And listen, I'll uh, come back. We can talk about me buying a bike maybe with some training wheels. All right. The thing with his character was weird because, yeah, it takes a very hard left turn. And this is another one where we don't get a lot of murders happening. We get the initial one of the cabbie who is a member of this bike gang that we find out later as Kolchak is doing his investigating. We get the one woman who is basically a throwaway. They just mention her character. We never really interact with her character. And we just see like a freeze frame. Also, the effects when it comes to the bike attacking people is really kind of weird, too. 
Yeah, I didn't understand that. It was, again, kind of distracting. We're like, freeze frames? This is me. I bet you're wondering how I got here. That's what that felt like. You know what I mean? One of those, like, how did I, like, it's just, it, it, like, what was the point? Because I guess they can't show them getting decapitated, but they weren't, they weren't going to anyways. Yeah, and even the way that they froze where the sword was when it was coming towards the cab driver, I was like, well, that really isn't anywhere near his head. I don't know if you, if he has to decapitate people too, or if he just wants to murder them. I understood that he had to decapitate them as well, because that's what happened to him, so he has to take revenge. And I like him pretending to be a sketch artist or a documentary filmmaker, this whole idea of Kolchak going undercover into getting into these places. And that's what I enjoy. And so I was really happy about that. Right? It feels like Fletch. He's like going in there. He's like, I'm, you know, Picasso Van Gogh, you know, but I got the ear. It's like, this is this is the fun stuff about Kolchak. Right. And when he's trying to distract the lady, like, oh, look at that profile. Oh, I'll be back to sketch you later. Look at the time. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff's super fun. And, and, and it's a good use of Darren McGavin and his like who he is charismatically as an actor. He's a very charismatic actor. That's why we keep watching this show. We keep watching this show because Darren McGavin is a very charismatic actor and we love him in the role of Kolchak. And it's nice to see this episode kind of giving him a little bit more room to really f- kind of flex his muscles as a as a charismatic lead of the show. And every single person that he meets in these little sojourns out to find more information, another great character actor. We're going to see like the guy who is basically trying to be the new Gordy the Ghoul, Neil. Like, I've seen him in a bunch of stuff. The guy who, of all things, Miss Emily tells him uh, that there's a uh, a guillotine exhibition going on. <laughs> so we get this whole thing with the, the, the art professor and telling him about the guillotine and all these things. And that Carl's trying to do this supernatural angle on the, on the uh, reign of terror. I mean, all of these people that he meets are somebody. And... Every single familiar face is very pleasant to see and to have him interact with them. I'm like, okay, this is good. Make sure you use, what is it, shoe polish so that they use shoe polish? Right. Again, it's a lot of fun. This episode is a lot of fun. It's just the parts that are fun are the parts that aren't the main watching the monster kill people, if that makes sense. Well, I guess we kind of want it both ways, right? Because – when we can't see the monster, <laughs> like the Paramount feed or the invisible monsters, like from the UFO episode or from the uh, Manchi Mantau episode. Manchi, oh boy, you're gonna, we're going to hear about it for that one. Those are invisible monsters and it would almost be better if this wasn't a visible effect rather than just being so blatantly obvious and out there. I completely 100% agree. It would be so much better if this episode didn't have a monster that we had to see every time and we're like, oh. If we just heard the motorcycle going, maybe something that... The motorcycle going that's ever-present in, like, every scene. Yeah, it's too much. It's way too much. Like you said, you overlooked you overlooked the monster... The, the chopper, the, the head chopper, the, the headless, headless motorcycle rider. You overlooked it. Um, and, and I probably should have as well, but the, my problem is, is I had a little bit of a hard time doing it because it was so goofy. And my question is, I wonder if I know and you know that they both thought it looked goofy. Do you think they didn't 
think it looked that goofy. They should have been able to find some other way of doing that. I mean, I don't know if they needed to build an oversized bike. So maybe the torso didn't look so huge on that little bike and on that little man. That's the problem is the torso is insane. It's a normal person's torso plus another however tall a head is. <laughs> tall it looked like a like one of those uh people that dress up for mardi gras like in the abbott and costello go to mars or something it's just like what is going on with this you know what i thought it was it just looks like one of those cheap halloween costumes uh, like uh, one of those halloween costumes that it's like oh it's the you could go down to the local halloween store and buy it it's like you're supposed to be like a headless horseman or like uh you know uh, like or the thing where it's you have the head the neck on top with the blood coming out, and then your face pops out in front. Which those look better. I mean, there was a... <laughs> That's the sad part, isn't it? There was a little girl I saw, like a little girl in her Halloween costume. She was walking around like that with her head like in the middle of her chest, and it looked like she was holding her own head. I was like, that looks really good. And again, it's unfortunate because there's so much fun stuff going on in this episode with all the character actors. Yeah, I want to point out real quick that the woman that played the widow, I thought she was fantastic. And she ends up, well, she's been in a ton of stuff. And what I remember her the most from was watching her in Night of the Comet, where she played Doris, the stepmom. And uh, she is great as basically being the villain in that movie for as long as she's around until she gets turned into red dust. But it was really nice seeing her and going, oh, it's Doris from Night of the Comet. The other thing I wanted to say real quick was that I think this might be the first time we get this shot from inside the INS office, looking out through the window and seeing the L train go by to kind of establish us again in Chicago, which was nice because we don't ever really get that. I mean, we get the exterior shot of the INS office, but we haven't seen this shot from inside looking out at the L. Yeah, I noticed that too. And I'm really surprised that it's taken this long for the show to like give us more of a sense of where the offices of INS are. They do a good job when it comes to like little details about Chicago, like even to the point where he's talking about how the bodies are being moved to the Cook County warehouse. I was like, well, that's nice. At least they're not just like making up things about Chicago and Illinois that they actually know enough to say that is Cook County. Well, I mean, they keep talking about Chicago over and over. I mean, it would be it would be a hell of an oversight for them to not mention it, right? Well, or they could just make up shit. I mean, it's... <laughs> I mean, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> I'm used to these days, like, the writing gets real sloppy when it comes to your sets and locations and just, you know, all the mountains in the background of New York, you know, <laughs> those kind of things. Yeah, what? There's not mountains outside of downtown New York City? Yeah, come on. I mean, I've seen the X-Files. I know those mountains. Yeah, right. Dear God. They're some of the worst. Uh, yeah, Jesus. There's some bad offenders out there. I mean, not everything can look like Vancouver, right? And I know that this is almost all backlot of Universal Studios. I was about to say, this is this is Culver City, California. Or what not Culver City, what is it? Studio City, California? But they pepper in those little details about Chicago, which I find to be nice. And the, uh, always having those openings over the city, I appreciate that. They're really trying to play up that illusion. Yeah, but it's totally shot in Studio City. 
Especially when we were seeing the same movie theater in multiple episodes, <laughs> the same same storefronts and everything. <laughs> when I think back on this episode, you know, because we're you know we're pretty far into this show at this point. We only have like five episodes left, so we're two thirds of the way in. When I when I think back on this episode and think about kind of the praise that has clearly been heaped upon this episode from fans of the show, I understand it, but at the same time. I think, and I mean, again, this is something that we've talked about before and we'll probably continue to talk about until we're blue in the face. People tend to overlook things in favor of nostalgia. I will say that Mr. R-I-N-G, much better episode. And I can see why people loud that one. Yeah, Mr. Ring was a good episode. I don't understand the hate t- towards that episode. I didn't get that either, but I think everybody has their favorites and everybody has their, their things. And I think with this one, when people started to realize like, Oh, this is Zemeckis and Gale that worked on this and they worked on my favorite movie back to the future. Maybe they give this one a little bit more preference. And also the idea of a headless horseman who's on a motorcycle. And also I have to say that the actual you know, the conceit of calling this chopper, where it's a guy who chops off heads and he's riding a chopper, is kind of a nice little turn of phrase as well. But, I mean, I don't think that this deserves as much praise as it gets. No, I don't either. And it's unfortunate because my expectation going into this episode was it was going to be something interesting and kind of worthwhile and stand out. But it kind of stood out for the wrong reasons. I know we only have... One, two, three, four, five old Kolchaks to go through. We still have a couple, quote-unquote, new Kolchaks to go through. I think when we get towards the end of this, like after we run through the rest of these episodes, we should still sit down and talk about the episodes that were written but never produced. Because kind of like how we did the third Kolchak movie and talk about what those might have been like. Because... Again, we can probably talk about what was good, what was bad, what they might have been, because especially after having watched all of these uh, episodes, we'll probably know the beats by then. Oh, yeah, completely. I completely agree. I mean, those are, well, isn't it three? Yeah, there's three, but I think I can only find two of the scripts. I don't think I have yet tracked down The Executioners by Max Hodge. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, you know, like you said, we'll... Uh... <laughs> We're going to know the beats by then, you know, and and that's the thing about these shows from the 70s is they're made in a way that a lot of them are very cookie cutter and formulaic. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. This show does kind of fall into that trap a little too often. And I'd be curious to see if those scripts are any better than some of the episodes we've seen. So, Chris, what is the latest with you over at the Culture Cast? Well, over at the Culture Cast, we're just... <laughs> Chugging along, watching the new movies of the year, watching some stuff we've wanted, been wanting to watch for a while. We're we're inching closer and closer to Mike White March, which still don't know what that's going to be this year, and I'm excited to find out because if if last year is any indication, it's going to be a good one. But uh, yeah, you know, uh, just watching movies. If you want to check that out, head on over to culturecast.com come to find that podcast. The real question that everyone is asking, I've been hearing it on the streets, walking down to the local Scooters coffee shop. I've been hearing people just asking, like, what is that guy, Mike White, up to? 
I'm sure you have. I, I'm sure it's everywhere on everyone's lips. It's on the tip of everyone's tongues. Well, it is February, so it is Black History Month, so I'm doing a series of black exploitation slash black-centered movies over at the Projection Booth, which is at projectionboothpodcast.com. So we're talking about Superfly with you, so you get to experience all of the Superfly madness. I hope that you enjoy those movies. Would you say he's pretty fly for a Superfly? I suppose so. That's the whitest thing I've ever said. You're welcome. And we're going to talk about Get Rollin', which is a roller boogie movie, and we're going to talk about Trouble Man with Robert Hooks, just kicking ass and taking names, and we'll talk about the House Party series of Kid and Play. So I might revisit Class Act, I'm not sure, but definitely all, and can you get this, five House Party movies. Wait, what? Yeah, I was aware of three, but there are five House Party movies out there. Uh, that I was unaware of. And then if you want, you can hear more of Chris and I over at our Twilight Zone 85 podcast, Dreams for Sale, which is available at TwilightZone85.com. That's a good one, too. If you want to listen to us talk about Twilight Zone 1985, a very good show sometimes when it wants to be. Kind of like this show. As always, I want to thank John Walker for a theme song. I want to thank everybody for listening. Please head on over to ColchakTapes.com if you want to find out more information. We've got a Facebook group where you can leave us nasty notes or whatever you want to do. Correct us. Or pretend like I don't exist. That works, too. That's my favorite. That's personally my favorite. You can leave us a review on iTunes and pretend that Chris doesn't exist. He enjoys that all the time. I don't think anyone can fathom how much I enjoy that. I am the one who knocks. There's an old simple axiom about the dead. Don't disturb them, not for any reason at all. Well, I decided to overlook that. And so I was almost beheaded by a phantom sword. Vincenzo refused to even discuss publishing my story. He didn't even look at the pictures. But the headless rider is at rest now. All the bones are together in one place, in one coffin. As for those members of the Joker's Motorcycle Club, I mean, those who are left, of course... Well, maybe they've suffered enough. Three of them died violently, and the others will carry the nightmare of the headless rider with them to their silent graves. And, incidentally, so will Captain Jonas, formerly of Homicide, now Sergeant Jonas of Traffic Control. You see, he's in charge of towing away parked cars. Thank <laughs> you.